to you by Chemistry. Hello listeners and welcome back to Brought to You by Chemistry. I am here in Joshi and today we bring you some bonus material from our interview with Dr. Hilary Jones. So let's begin. So um, I've been a GP um, for uh, 40 years um, and and seen immense changes in general practice during that time. Um, And it was probably 10 years into general practice as, as as a GP principal that, you know, I was aware that you could see one patient at a time in the surgery, which is a very important discipline, um, just focusing on that one patient. But you could reach tens of thousands in a broadcast and, and spread a, um, a broadcast message to millions of people. So when there was a public health issue and, and the most recent one being, you know, the greatest one for decades, which was the COVID-19 pandemic, reaching those pe- people and giving them the information that they needed um, in order to protect themselves and and talking about changes in um, uh, vaccination schedules and the importance of um, uh, the precautions we took against COVID-19. You know, you couldn't do this on a one-to-one basis in the surgery, but, but, you know, I was aware that you could do it uh, on, on television and in the media. So obviously your job is as a medical communicator. Um, Why is this so important, particularly in the area of infectious diseases and especially in AMR? Well, it's it's what's what has been so surprising during the recent pandemic is the level of ignorance in the general population. I think as scientists, we assume that that the people have a, a, a basic knowledge of science, that they trust doctors, they trust researchers and scientists. But they certainly don't. Um, they, they don't appear to all the time, uh, just as they don't trust the government. Um, so they are sceptical and they question, um, you know, it, it, back in the day, probably what the doctor said was gospel and it wasn't questioned. But now it's much more likely that people will question scientists um, and um, go down the line of um, conspiracy theories that they might see on social media. So this surprised me during the pandemic. But even before that, um, you know, there was scepticism about, you know, MMR. There was scepticism about other vaccines. Um, There was uh, sort of a lot of concern, largely inflamed by a salacious media about the side effects of antidepressants, about the side effects of um, all sorts of uh, medicinal drugs, which had a, a, a really good value. So this was of concern to me, and I, I did two things. I took the jargon out of the um, communication messages um, and 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 put everything in very simple terms and explained, from my point of view, why it was so important to follow um, good guidelines uh, with medical evidence. Um, I guess a follow-up to that, because obviously that is one of the biggest challenges in terms of public trust. How do you myth-bust a lot of the... Um conspiracy theories that might be out there and you mentioned um some of your strategies like um, removing some of the jargon trying to make things a little bit more relatable and easily accessible for for the public how do you and your producers networks work together to create specific messaging 
It, de it depends on the uh, particular editors of, of different programs or newspapers. Um, some will take a more um, salacious, scaremongering view. It sells newspapers. Um, other editors want to be more responsible um, and, and will ask me for guidance as well. But often it's news-led. And, and the whole area of, of um, uh, antimicrobial disease is fascinating. You, you, you know that the previous um, head of the um, Department of Health, um, uh, Sally Davis. Sally Davis, sorry. Yeah. I mean, she's written a book on the subject uh and you know it's fascinating but even when penicillin was being produced for the first time back in the uh, 1940s in oxford that they were aware that that, that um uh, there was um resistance to penicillin in in certain organisms uh, so, so it's not a new thing but it, but because of the overuse of uh, antibiotics in the last sort of 30 40 years we, we now face germs which are resistant, um, which are very virulent um, and, uh, and uh, lethal. And there's still this pressure to overprescribe when it's not necessary, partly because we don't have enough diagnostic tests uh, to see what we're dealing with. You know, as I've said on television in the last few days, you can't look at a sore throat and know what, what it is that's causing that throat. Is it, is it a viral infection? Just because there's exudation, does it mean it's strep A? Um, of course, it could be glandular fever. It could be many different things, and you wouldn't necessarily want to use antibiotics in glandular fever, of course. So um, it's a challenge, and um, it, it's very difficult for a GP who's pushed for time, inundated with worried parents, to say, I don't think your child needs an antibiotic. Um, because to try and explain why is going to take a long time. Mm. GPs don't have that time, so it's understandable that they reach for a prescription pad um, and um, and the patient leaves the room. I was just going to ask, you were saying, obviously, we're kind of no longer in an era where people just implicitly trust what doctors say. People kind of tend to, quote unquote, do their own research and push back. Do you think that for that reason, it's particularly important now that um, people's, people have a high level of scientific literacy so that they can actually understand what the scientists and doctors are saying and understand intellectually why it's correct rather than kind of just throwing out the advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wish that um, there was more science uh, um, on television. Um, you know, we, we, there's probably 400 TV channels out there, a TV in every room of every home in this country, and, and a woeful lack of, of, of scientific um, education. It's all about entertainment. And, you know, I tell my TV bosses this all the time, but, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's probably less profit in, in, um, in talking science and making science sexy. I mean, we've got some very good people who, who talk about astrology and about various scientific um, issues, but they're few and far between. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to see more programmes devoted to, to science and new techniques, new, new discoveries. How, how do we motivate our young people to uh, think of a career uh, in, in chemistry or biochemistry, you know, medicine, science in the future, if everything is centred around entertainment? So I, I think a job needs to be done there and schools maybe could look at the curriculum. I don't think it's difficult to really um, uh, influence children at a young age uh, to get them involved in science. Um, it can be made fun. Um, and, you know, perhaps it would take preference over certain other subjects on the curriculum that doesn't seem to have changed for decades. So, I mean, that that's really interesting. 
and a question in terms of how to get people a bit more interested maybe bringing a kind of hopeful angle to um sort of this discussion on amr and with your experience of being a, a medical practitioner for 40 years have you seen you know in the in the last five to ten years any cool interesting innovations within our healthcare that has improved um how we diagnose patients yes yeah, so i've seen some advances and i've seen some some um backward steps um you know it wasn't i mean i remember uh, when i first started in general practice it was still quite commonplace to take a throat swap um uh, you know if, if somebody had a a, a a very um inflamed um pair of tonsils we would do a throat swab we'd send it off for culture and sensitivity and we get the result back from the hospital within 3 or 4 days so we'd know what we were dealing with um if if they weren't on antibiotics and it was a bacterial infection we could prescribe the appropriate one um, or if they were already on antibiotics and it was a resistant infection, we could change the antibiotic prescription. Um, not many GPs are using throat swabs at all. And of course, it takes a few days to get the results and everybody wants everything like tomorrow these days, you know, or yesterday. Um, so, you know, then they want that prescription now. There are practices that use rapid um, antigen testing, um, but they're few and far between. Um, PCR might be used in hospitals, particularly for things like meningitis, suspected meningitis. Um, PCR has been very useful in uh, PCR on peripheral blood. Um, the polymerase chain reaction has probably changed the management of suspected meningitis. And not everybody will have a, a spinal tap. Um, a lumbar puncture uh, might be unnecessary if PCR shows a, a positive result. Uh, and an early treatment is begun. So I think innovations like this have been extremely useful. Um, but as I say, throat swabs, we're not doing so much. And, and I, you know, I don't know why they've gone out of fashion, but um, they're still very useful uh, and much cheaper than PCRs. Um, are there differences in how you would use diagnostic tests in different scenarios? So um, presumably you'd need faster diagnostics for emergency admissions, different kinds for GP admissions. Can you just expand on that bit more? Sure. Um, you know, we, we, we would always, with our medical training, try to um, manage a patient's condition based on what we can prove. So on, on, a, on an accurate diagnosis, um, you know, if, if we know exactly what we're dealing with, um, then we're, we're on to a winner. Um, guessing is not good news. It's not scientific and it's not good for the patient. So, for example, in general practice, um, the kind of um, diagnostics that we use, we, obviously blood tests are commonplace. Um, you know, occult bloods are sent to people's homes these days, routine screening, um, cervical, cervical um, smears um, uh, uh, have been life-saving. Um, and we have scans, we have x-rays. So, so these things have been um, something we've taken for granted for a long time, um, to the extent that now everybody expects a scan for, for every little thing. Um, but general practice is um, underfunded compared to the rest of the, the health service. And I think if, if we had more GPs and we had more resources, we would be able to do a lot of diagnostic testing in primary care and take a lot of pressure off um, hospitals. 
in hospitals, of course, you've got laboratories on site. So um, there you, you probably have um, a more appropriate setup for PCR testing, um, for um, looking at biological markers in urine. And there have been some fascinating developments, haven't there? In, in recent weeks, we've read about possible biomarkers in urine for um, uh, dementia. I mean, incredible. Um, and the famous case of the woman who could smell on somebody's sweat, Parkinson's hadn't yet developed. Remarkable circumstances, really. But if, if these things can be honed into tests which can detect prior to the development of, of, of significant diseases, you know, we, we have a, a, an opportunity there to treat people much earlier and, and intervene to, to prevent the onset of significantly um, debilitating conditions. So, yeah, I think it depends on the on the scenario. Is it a clinic? Is it a G GP clinic? Is it, is it a hospital? You're going to get different tests. But again, primary care is the gatekeeper. If you can if you can work out that someone's got a significant illness, then you can refer them to secondary care for further tests. So what I got from that was that every GP needs to have somebody who's going to go around sniffing the patient <laughs> to figure out what's wrong with them. You need somebody with that ability and they're very rare. But whatever <laughs> yeah. that person is sniffing, that's what we need to identify okay. that molecule. We can identify that molecule. Then a machine is almost certainly going to be able to do it. You know, the future is exciting um, in, in that, you know, we will be discovering diseases earlier. And the same is true of, of genomic sequencing. You know, if we can uh, show which patients are more likely to get, you know, colon, colorectal cancer, we can intervene earlier. So genomic sequencing, I think, is something that NHS England want to make routine, mm. part of routine care. And we know that, that people with colorectal cancer with a certain gene mutation are gonna respond better to taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like aspirin compared to people who don't have that gene mutation. So again, looking at genomics uh, and personalized personalized medicine uh, is, is certainly going to be important in the future. So one thing that's come up a lot in uh, previous episodes of this podcast is um, that AMR is hit it, already hitting the global south a lot harder. So presumably this means that like quick, accessible and portable uh, diagnostics are kind of urgently needed everywhere. Yes, they are. They are urgently needed. We, we, need, we need to know whether somebody needs um, uh, an antibiotic, um, really needs one. Mm. Um, and we need to know what, what germ we're dealing with. And, and that should be um, that should be coming um, a quicker uh, assessment in the future with diagnostics. Um, you know, but, but I think there have only been two, two antibiotics in production. Um, in the last, I don't know what, ten years, um, wow. which is which is really worrying. Um, you know, we, we need we need many many more because you know there there are common bugs out there, E. coli particularly, that's resistant to a whole number of of commonly used antibiotics. The things that we would reach for first or second or third, uh, and um, you know, some people are getting really sick and being hospitalized with infections that are resistant to so many uh, things that normally we just take for granted and take orally. And now we're having to give them intravenously or, or through other um, portals to, uh, to, to get people better. Something that also has 
uh, cropped up with diagnostics, um, and this is something that you can probably answer, Dr. Hillary, is um, sort of what are the challenges with AMR in GP practices? So like how do GPs need to manage patient expectations and also improve knowledge of correct use? Again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm harking back to my early experiences as a GP. When I first started in general practice, um, we ran a personal list of patients. Um, so I had 2,400 patients who were allocated to me. Wow. Um, these patients would see me first if I was available at the surgery, which I was most of the time. We did our own nights and weekends back in that day as well. So we got to know our patients. So we would know if you, for example, was a stoic person whose notes were very thin and I hardly ever saw you. I, I would know that when you came to see me, something was really wrong because I hadn't seen you for 10 years. Um, so you come to see me with something and I'm, I'm going to pay attention because, you know, um, that's an unusual event. If, however, your neighbor came to see me and they came to see me twice a week with every little thing, my level of suspicion about this being a, a more trivial condition and not requiring antibiotics would, would be that much greater. And, and, and so I would know that knowing the patient, the patient's history, the patient's way of thinking helped me to make a decision about whether they should have this treatment or that treatment. Also, um, if somebody wanted to see me, I would see them the same day. Um, I know right now people are having difficulty getting an appointment for two or three weeks, but if someone phoned me back in the day and they said, I really would like to see you, I would see them the same day. And that gave us a remarkable ability to assess them when they were acutely ill and if we were worried, say, well, look, you've got a sore throat and you've got a few glands here, but I don't think you, you haven't got a fever. Your, your appetite's good. You're constitutionally pretty well. I don't think we need to give you antibiotics for this reason. But if it gets worse, I'll see you again. And that continuity of care is so important. If, if only we could go back to that continuity of care where I would see you again, that hardly ever happens now. But I could see the same patient to see the evolution of the illness, how it was responding to treatment, whether it was getting worse. Which in, in with things like strep A, throat or um, sepsis or meningitis is life-saving. I find that so interesting and quite depressing because obviously we're, to, we're talking a lot about technology and gadgets and what kind of um, you know futuristic methods can we use to automate all of this and basically what you're saying is it just needs like a person with the knowledge and the commitment and that relationship with the patient that you can't really replace that with a machine can you? You can't. And, and interestingly, I, I was hearing the, the new department, the, the um, uh, uh, Minister for Health, uh, Stephen Barclay, saying that artificial intelligence is the answer, you know, that, um, you know, robots are going to read X-rays and scan results. And I'm thinking, no, please, you know, you don't understand. You, you're going to need, you know, that human experience um, to look at uh, diagnostic um, images in conjunction with the knowledge of the patient. Um, I don't believe, and I might be in a minority here, that technology can replace doctors. 
I, I, th I think that there still needs to be that holistic approach. You need to combine the art of medicine with the science of medicine so that you've got an input into the underlying condition. And this over-reliance on technology um, it, it, it has a downside as well. Technology is has to be embraced and it will advance medicine, but also it can get in the way a little bit. I mean, we, we, we have in years gone by wasted billions of pounds on IT systems that didn't work for the NHS. And that money could have been spent on, on new hospitals and, and more beds. But, you know, thank goodness I'm not the Minister of Health and I don't have to make these decisions. But I do think we need more doctors and, and perhaps less reliance on, you know, on technology. For sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just wanted to back up a little bit just to um, the point about communicating to patients and communicating why we can't overprescribe antibiotics. Because um, I was just thinking about the fact that obviously, as I understand it, it's not that the individuals are becoming resistant to antibiotics, it's that the microbes are becoming yes. resistant. So therefore, it's uh, the reason for not overprescribing is more like for the greater good, right? So not to, and it's not necessarily to the advantage of to specifically to the advantage of that individual. So is that hard to explain to people that, you know? Yes, um, Yeah. of course, yes. You know, it's a, it's a very, very good question. And that is a common myth. People think that if, I, if, if they take too many antibiotics, they won't respond to antibiotics in the future. It's not them who's responding to the antibiotic, it's the germs. The germs will mutate and become resistant. So next time you need an antibiotic for that germ it, the antibiotic won't work. This is commonly seen in women who have regular cystitis, for example, and kidney infections. The more antibiotics they take on the assumption that it's an infection rather than just uh, an inflammatory cystitis, you know, the more they take, the more resistant the bugs become. And then they get a, um, a pyelonephritis, a kidney infection, which is a nasty infection that can lead to sepsis, which doesn't respond immediately to antibiotics. So their symptoms last longer and are more severe and they can develop complications which could be life-threatening. So that's one example. Another good example, I think, um, is in newborn babies. We, we know the, the gut biome, the, 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 the trillions of cells which line our gut and are important in our immunity and our gut digestive function and the production of vitamins, that biome is established at birth. And we know that three things can influence the gut biome. <clears throat> if, if we're born um, naturally, as opposed to through caesarean, if we're breastfed as opposed to formula fed, and if we don't have antibiotics in the first year of our life, our, our gut is likely to be much more healthy than the people who are you know, born by other means and have antibiotics and uh, are bottle fed. It's simple as that. So again, you know, restricting antibiotics if we can in the first year of life, uh, restricting them whenever we don't need them. You know, not, only 50% of in, if cystitis is caused by infection, but everybody assumes it's an infection. You know, it could just be inflammatory. It could just need um, a change in the alkalinity of the urine or, you know, drinking more fluids or taking cranberry juice. Um, and of course, diagnostic uh, urinalysis sticks are very useful. We can see if there are nitrates there. We can see if there's blood or protein. Um, they're helpful, very helpful. Um, and, and now we've got things that you can hang in the toilet and 
men can pee on it tells you if you've got any blood there um that's great it, it, it's user friendly so i guess a final question um is sort of i mean it could be sort of your personal take but are you hopeful for the future when it comes to sort of antimicrobial resistance and just general treatment of infectious diseases? I'm with the WHO on this, and I think it is one of the biggest threats to the human race, antimicrobial resistance. Um, it, it's it's up there with the, the WHO in the top three threats to the human yeah. race. If we lose um, the efficacy of all antibiotics, which is the way it's going, we're, we're back to a pre-antibiotic era mm. where a fifth of children under five died of infection. Well, you know, is it, is it worse than before than the pre-antibiotic era? Because we now have superbugs that have kind of evolved to become more resistant. In many ways, yes. Uh, and we have a, a, a higher number of population living in crowded cities and towns and, you know, with more mingling. Um, okay. So we, 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 we've got, uh, the ability to isolate people mm. and we understand the importance of of hygiene we've got better hygiene better housing on the whole but globally we haven't um and as you say there are these superbugs now which have replaced the you know the pretty more pretty much more innocent ones um of uh, decades gone by so it is a real worry and i do hope that we are able to convey that message to the general public who have just got used to medicine being a, a panacea for all ills, you know, yes. for a tablet that, you know, that will, that will bail me out of this condition, you know, our lifestyles and, and taking responsibility for our own health has got to be much more at the forefront. Amazing stuff. So um, that's it from us, Dr. Hillary Jones. Thank you well, thank so you much, much for joining us. Keep up the good work. Yes. No colds and coughs. Um, no. <laughs> and, the doctor's solution to a cold or a sniffle is the hot toddy. The doctor's prescription. <laughs> yeah, we're doing that here. <laughs> yeah. Good. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's it from us this week. Thank you to Dr. Hilary Jones for joining myself and my colleague Lizzie Ratcliffe. Join us next week where our regular host, Alex Lathbridge, is diving deep into the topic of antimicrobial resistance in the environment. Mm -hmm.